Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes, and this is Let's Talk America. We'll be continuing today our, our conversations that we've been having with a range of folks, uh, trying to navigate what is, I think, an increasingly important and difficult challenge uh, that faces not only people in the United States, though we are, are I think, under a special kind of pressure, uh, but people around the world. Uh, we've come to a point that I begin to think of uh, as a critical crisis of our reliance on science. Uh, it took a while in the course of human history for uh, especially the last couple, three hundred years, uh, for people to understand and then begin to rely upon the results of scientific inquiry uh, disciplined by what we call the scientific method. Always keeping in mind that there had been a kind of discipline for uh, science all throughout the ages. Uh, but we are now, it seems, at a time of crisis where uh, political and ideological matters are starting to muddy the waters of scientific inquiry. There are a few people, however, who stand out uh, as folks who are true to the original standard and therefore are liable to be most helpful in helping us chart our course uh, through this uh, challenging time of crisis. Uh, one of those folks is going to be with us, and you don't want to miss this conversation. I'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alan Keyes. I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the Health Ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the Health Ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. Welcome back. My guest today is Meryl Nass. Now, Dr. Nass is a, a medical doctor, a clinician who has uh, made uh, a, quite a distinguished career of dealing with complex challenges uh, uh, that are presented to her in terms of uh, the kind of diseases and, and uh, syndromes that people can be subject to. Uh, she's also someone who's renowned uh, for uh, making uh, breakthroughs, at least in terms of sharing knowledge and information with folks, that help us to understand some of the critical challenges that have developed in areas like biowarfare. She was very much involved, you'll remember, uh, in the anthrax business that occurred some years back, uh, and helped to think through and get an accurate sense of how we should deal uh, with that challenge. Now, we're obviously these days. Uh, in a time when we're faced with the very same kind of challenges. We're getting information, and I'd have to say misinformation, from all quarters, and trying to sort through it and figure out not only what actually has substantial and solid scientific uh, evidence in its favor, and therefore good grounds for taking policy decisions, uh, but some of the ways in which it begins to appear uh, there are, how can I put it, a tendentious quality. Uh, to the policies that are being adopted, to the things that we are being asked to do, 
that may or may not be grounded in science, but that somebody out there thinks is going to achieve a purpose all their own uh, that looks like it's going to be seriously detrimental to the way of life that we've had in the United States. It's already had an impact on our economy. And Merrill, somebody I think by her work, by her uh, background in terms uh, as an academic, as somebody who has studied deeply, uh, but also her practice, all of it comes together to be someone who's extraordinarily, uh, I think, uh, important in helping us to think these things through. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And I have to tell you, I feel, I feel both honored and benefited uh, that you're willing to spend some time with us, so thank you for that. Uh, but it's characteristic of the way that I think you have given of yourself over the course of your entire career. Uh, and uh, we're at a time when folks like yourself, though they are in short supply, become thereby ever more precious uh, to all the rest of us. And I think we're in one of those challenging times now. Um, I'd like to start off uh, with a kind of general question. For the last few months, we have been uh, dealing uh, with the, what, what, what uh, it's variously called the COVID-19, COVID-2, SARS, uh, many different appellations, including the Wuhan virus and other things, as a threat, which in the beginning, they, they made it sound as if this was going to be something that would cast a shadow throughout the entire earth. Uh, I have to tell you, my impression now, though, is that the narrative is still casting a shadow throughout the, the earth, but I'm not sure that it isn't one of those cases where the light that's shining on what's actually happening is creating rather a longer shadow than actually is warranted by the facts. Um, and so uh, uh, to start out with, since you have a, a kind of synoptic and general sense of what's going on, um, as you look at the kinds of responses uh, that have arisen in our country and other countries uh, around the world to the threat of the COVID-2, COVID-19 uh, viral threat. Um, what is your assessment of the policies that have been adopted? Uh, does it strike you that they have been, in fact, up to the challenge, or have they been uh, things that were necessary to meet the challenge? Um, or are we dealing also with other agendas that are going on so that some of the things being asked may or may not have anything to do with the business of saving human lives? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of questions, and let me start at the beginning. Uh, when this virus was first discovered uh, in China and then in the United States, I was extremely worried. I, I have a background in biological warfare, and I understood the um, ways this organism might spread, that it had been, it had, there had been a lot of concern because of SARS-1 and MERS in the past that um, a biological warfare agent like this could enter the population. And I warned people extensively about the reasons why I was concerned, that the particular features that this bug had that in some ways made it worse than the first SARS, which fortunately the United States really didn't have to grapple with, but in 2012, um, China had a big out, well, what was thought to be a big outbreak at the time. There were only about 8,000 total cases in the world. Um, Vietnam had it, Canada and Toronto had a lot of cases. So we knew this was a very a life-threatening disease, and basically no matter what you did, 
uh, if people had a severe case, you couldn't save them. And there was about a 9% mortality rate from the first SARS eight years ago. And so I warned people and I explained as best I could because I, I actually knew what you needed to do, you know, how to um, protect yourself, how, you know, to avoid places. Uh, talked about droplet spread versus airborne spread, which is very confusing for a lot of people. That um, it's thought, and we don't have solid information on this, so we don't know how many people contract this infection through droplets that are sort of sprayed on them from a short distance mm. by somebody infected versus how much sits in the air and when you're in the grocery store, you may just inhale enough mm. and get it versus how much from that someone has exhaled has landed on a surface that you've touched and then touched your eye, nose or mouth. So we don't know what the relative risks are of those three kinds of uh, ways of being infected. But there are ways to uh, mitigate all of those problems, the airborne problem being the hardest to mitigate because uh, it requires a lot of air changes. You, you can't keep breathing in the same air. And unfortunately, with tight buildings and current ventilation systems, most buildings do not have sufficient air exchanges to significantly reduce the risk of airborne spread. Mm. Now, wearing an N95 mask uh, is supposed to keep out 95% of the particles if it's worn tightly around your face, everything is perfect and it hasn't been reused um, and you're not touching the outside, you can probably mitigate the airborne spread very considerably. Okay, so it seemed like this was going, this was a terrible infection at first very deadly uh, in the United States, over 20% mortality rates in those who were hospitalized back in March and April. Mm. Um, and in the UK, uh, higher mortality rates in the high 20s. Um, in China, initially, there was a, over a 30% mortality rate in hospitalized patients recorded. Now, what I want to say is that what we're looking at now is not the same disease that we were seeing in March and April for a large number of reasons. Yeah. First of all, back then, doctors really had no idea how to deal with it. And doctors were afraid of it. And there was not enough personal protective equipment for doctors and nurses. So there were all sorts of strategies of how to manage a patient when you didn't get near them. And what kind of uh, new software and hardware could be applied so that you could monitor patients from another room? Well, obviously, if you haven't been doing, if, if that stuff isn't already existing, um, you're not going to be doing it well. So doctors and nurses tried to stay away from the patients. Um, we put a lot of people on ventilators because ventilators usually work for, they work almost all the time for deadly conditions. What they do is basically um, take over for your lung when your lung is filled up with pus or other materials and allows your, your body, your own immune system, to get rid of a viral infection, usually over a period of about a week, a few days, maybe a bit longer. And at the end of it, you're, it keeps you alive during that period. So that's the usual purpose of a ventilator. Um, if you have a bacterial infection, until the antibiotics are working, 
and your own body will help you get over it. It'll, your your own immune system will clean up the uh, last bacteria or virus in your body, and you will survive. In the case of COVID, that is not what happened. First of all, the the infection lasted a lot longer than usual for for most other organisms we see. And during that second phase of infection, when the virus first of the first phase virus is increasing in your body um, and starting to spread around your body to multiple organs and even to the blood vessel walls themselves and causing damage there. Um, but the second phase is that this virus triggers a very exuberant immune reaction and this in high amount of inflammation results in scarring mm. as well as other complications such as blood clots and um, putting people on a ventilator first of all you needed to have them on longer than anticipated so doctors would try to get them off faster and that was a problem it's hard to get someone it's hard to wean someone off a ventilator and get their lungs back working again if, if the lungs aren't ready so that could kill people potentially um, plus apparently the pressures that are normally tolerated by the lungs were i'm guessing this we don't know yet for sure were not tolerated in this case and so that um in a, a new york city study in several hospitals uh there was an over 80 percent perhaps as high as 88 percent mortality rate in those patients who had been placed on ventilators using standard protocols for how much volume of how much oxygen how much pressure you apply with a ventilator. Okay, so that was a problem. Um, we didn't know what drugs might be useful so in the beginning, and so there were trials of a variety of drugs and a variety of doses, but they weren't terribly effective. We also told people to stay home unless their condition was desperate, and probably a lot of people died at home. Um, so, and everybody was overwhelmed. I mean, the patients were um, emotionally overwhelmed, as were the providers in the hospitals and the outpatient, and they didn't know what to do. Uh, even though uh, protective equipment wa existed, and it's always been there, and we've used it for illnesses like tuberculosis, doctors and nurses really didn't use the equipment that often or that um, aggressively because we were never frightened that we would die from an infection we caught from a patient. So let's say I got tuberculosis from patient. In fact, I did when I was in training, mild case. If you get to, if say the mask fails, you get tuberculosis, we have drugs to treat tuberculosis. So really doctors have never been faced with a situation where they could contract a, a disease that would be incurable. Uh, from patients, so um, and they could bring that disease home to their families. So imagine doctors and nurses being in a situation they ha have never been prepared for, and they have to use the protective equipment in a very careful way that they've never been trained to do. Right. So, for instance, in China, they started giving doctors a several-day course in how to put on and take off this equipment because you frequently contaminate yourself as you're mm. taking it off. You also need separate spaces. You need a, a, a you assume the patient's room, 
room in the hospital is a dirty room, then hopefully the hallway is a clean space, but you need a, an intermediate space where you can control the, the airflow, um, where you can change out of your equipment. And in many places now at, at Mass General um, and in China, they actually have a hospital employee watching the doctors and nurses as they change out of the personal protective equipment to make sure it's done correctly. That's how you know, easy it is to contaminate yourself. So given all of that, the situation was very dire and death rates were high. Also, coronaviruses naturally mutate at a reasonably high rate. So about one in 10,000 to one in 100,000 um, base pair um, reproduction. So the, the, the genome of coronavirus is 34,000 base pairs, or bases, I should say. And so approximately one of those bases is going to be copied incorrectly as it multiplies. And so mutations will be acquired. And although there's been a lot of media about mutations that might make this more deadly or easier to spread, in fact, that virtually never happens. It, in real life, um, if we ignore viruses that have been weakened so they can be used in vaccines, such as the polio virus and live polio vaccine, viruses that cause us infections do not mutate and become uh, more virulent. Existing viruses, so the flu virus doesn't, the measles virus doesn't, mumps doesn't, um, cold viruses don't don't become deadly. Can I ask a question there? In the relationship between SARS-1 and SARS-2, COVID-19 and the uh, coronavirus, uh, that's right. like it, um, they're obviously different. Uh, question is, and uh, you, t you mentioned uh, the context of, uh, that implies natural mutation as opposed to some kind of intervention um, yes. in order to make things uh, more deadly or change their characteristics. In, in your judgment, is there any reason uh, to believe or dismiss the notion uh, that the virus that we're dealing with wasn't a natural mutation? I am one of those who believes it is much more likely that this uh, virus was created in a lab mm for a variety of reasons that are somewhat arcane and difficult to describe. Uh, there are two, two sites on this that are unusual. One is the receptor binding domain and the other is a, a what's called a furin cleavage site. Um, and that site gives this virus the ability to infect more organs and to more easily get into cells. And the coronaviruses that we know of so far, with one possible exception, which is probably uh, probably a fraudulent exception, um, do not have binding sites and furin cleavage sites that look anything like this. Although much of the rest of the virus does look like other uh, bat coronaviruses or pangolin coronaviruses. Well, I uh, heard that, uh, or kept reading, I, I shouldn't use the word heard, but heard, you know, through looking at and hearing the words. Um, people mentioned that 
in, in some way this is, uh, reflects or has elements of the, the um, some version of the AIDS virus. Is that accurate or inaccurate? Um, it's not clear to me whether that's accurate or not, but um, uh, Montagne, a Nobel Prize winner from France, has said that this is the case. Right now in the United States, virologists are not spending a lot of time examining those parts of the genome of the coronavirus. So I don't think it's been it's clarified yet. And the, the, in the areas that Monta Luc Montagne says have been inserted are short. And so there's a possibility that uh, they could have arisen through natural mutations. However, it's also possible, it's very, it would be very easy with the tools that are now available to create a virus like this and a number of labs around the world which collaborated with each other were in fact creating viruses like this. And those labs were in the United States, China, Japan, multiple places in the US. Um, and Europe and Australia and scientists went back and forth and worked in each other's labs so the uh, Most of the technology if not all of it was already published for how to create something like this um, Now there is also a story from China that uh, several miners who were cleaning up a cave It's unclear why they were cleaning this cave up to me mm. came down with an illness um, about eight years ago and that a virus was um, found in the miners and in the cave that was almost identical to this current coronavirus. If that's true, but, but the Chinese have produced some very questionable evidence of that, uh, but some evidence looks strong and some looks weak, if that's true, then maybe this is simply um, that same virus or a natural derivative of it. Well, On the other well, hand, it, people in many labs may have seen this virus, certainly they did in China, and may have then um, you know, fiddled around with it a little more because it is, as I said, it is possible to make, th make these viruses more contagious or to get into more kinds of cells or or to do other things it, mm. we know how to do that and well i understand that uh, there is some uh, I, I think her name is shi Zhengli. i keep hearing about um uh, who was at the wuhan lab um do you make anything of the possibility of her uh involvement and the outbreak that occurred and then also, the thing I think that has set a lot of folks, uh, you know, a little bit um, ajar in terms of their conclusions they can reach about what was actually happening was the Chinese reaction. Because there had been a sense of cooperation, and then suddenly it was like they wanted to ring the curtain down and not let folks know exactly what was happening. Uh, how did you, in your own mind, uh, sort of analyze all of that? Okay. Um, so Dr. Xi Li was the head of coronavirus research, basically in China and certainly at the Wuhan lab. She wasn't the director of the, of the whole uh, WIV, but she was the director of 
coronavirus research and uh, and particularly bat coronaviruses. Um, she herself said, I didn't sleep for days, you know, and I had to go through my lab books and make sure that this had not escaped from our lab, basically. Hmm. And, um, yes, the Chinese have initially seemed to provide, they provided the um, genomic structure of the virus very quickly, but then certain Chinese scientists were silenced. Now, um, think, of, think about if this had happened in the United States, what might have happened, and particularly in light of the censorship we're seeing in the media, um, I think if this had happened uh, in the United States, I'm pretty sure that the scientists who work on coronaviruses would have also been instructed to keep very quiet and not speak to the media and pass things through federal um, minders, etc. And the, the implications of one lab or one country being responsible for this worldwide pandemic that's costing trillions of dollars are huge. So there, a lot of effort is going to be made to try to obscure the role of any country in this. The other thing is that the, the lab in China was partly financed by the U.S., by federal grants, some of which came from the Defense Department. Um, that lab was also partly financed by the Europeans. And so it's very confusing that these different countries were doing coronavirus research, funding each other, sharing scientists, sharing techniques, and yet these techniques were creating organisms that had significant pandemic potential. Yeah. And why well, we'll was We'll have that to stop there for a moment, let folks think about that, I'll be certainly thinking about it because we have to take a brief message and then we'll be right back. So hold the thought so we don't lose that train of thought because it's a fascinating one. Um, hmm. More IMTV episodes? We are now streaming through Roku. Roku is a device that enables you to stream entertainment to your TV through your internet provider. The starting price is only $29, and you can purchase one either online or through your local electronics retailer. It's easy to use, and you won't have to worry about missing any more IMTV episodes. IMTV, changing the world. Podcasts are great when you're a multitasking person. You can listen to them around the house, when you're out in the car, when you take a walk. Now we have put our shows on to podcasts, and you can listen to Let's Talk America uh, on podcasts. You can find them at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other apps. And while you're there, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Thanks for listening and supporting us. Together, we're changing the world. Welcome back. Uh, we're in the midst of, uh, I think, a fascinating learning experience. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, we, we have Meryl Nass on today, and she's talking uh, about uh, some of the aspects, the challenging aspects of understanding. Uh, we have been so far talking about the, the origins uh, and the actual nature of the uh, COVID-19 or uh, SARS-2, uh, whatever you want to call it, vi virus. Uh, one of the things you were talking about there, though, in terms of uh, the uh, Chinese reaction in the context of all the different nations that had been exchanging information and to a certain extent, as I understand it, even personnel going back and forth uh, and things of that kind. 
um, in my mind has to do also with a question that you kind of referred to in passing as you were describing uh, the initial things. Because in some respects, what we actually ended up seeing in the United States didn't look to me like what we saw images of coming out of Wuhan in the early days. Um, it was as if something else was at work, uh, maybe something more, even more uh, virulent. But I'm, I'm not sure, because we haven't, I at least haven't seen any images of people kind of dropping over dead in their tracks because they suddenly uh, were uh, overcome by the effects uh, of this viral uh, syndrome. Uh, what uh, it feeds, I think, a lot of speculation that we're actually not dealing with the same virus and that uh, different kinds of virus were uh, potentially, if you start thinking like a, a strategist, I know it's forbidden now, you're not supposed to think like a strategist. They call it conspiracy theory and want everybody to stop doing it. But if you stop doing conspiracy theory, you have actually stopped doing strategic thought. Uh, because all strategic thought is conspiracy thinking, one way or the other. You're either devising the conspiracy on your own side, or you're trying to figure out what might have been the, uh, the conspiratorial aim and, and activities of your enemy. So it's a stupid thing to say we should stop doing conspiracy theory, because we'd have to live, I don't know, in a perfect paradise under the supervision of a perfect God, uh, where nobody was going to attack anybody else by means that we're trying to, uh, you know, steal a march on us, surprise us, and otherwise leave us incapacitated. So it's just a stupid thing to accuse people of conspiracy theory. Um, if we're not doing it, then we're not thinking in a way that's helpful uh, to our own survival. But if you were thinking in that way, uh, one of the things that's intrigued me about the, the meta-narrative is this expectation that there's going to be, you know, a second phase of all of this, and we're going to see something that we're going to have a harder time dealing with, an enormous expansion of cases and so forth. It does occur to me, though, that the, if this were some kind of strategic effort, uh, the first effort would have been to sort of position us for a blow that we would then no longer be in a position to deal with. Uh, because of our reaction or overreaction to the first one, uh, and that what could have happened, I'm just speculating, absolute speculation, uh, is that it was the virus intended to be responsible for that second phase of what would then be a, a terror strategy, right? That actually got loose, and it had to be shut down so that it, its usefulness wasn't removed. Uh, and that's why there is still an expectation we're going to be hit again, because that virus has, in fact, not been deployed. Is that simply far-fetched? Uh, I mean, I keep it in the back of my mind. I haven't really talked to anybody about it much. Um, but um, it did occur to me uh, as, as a possibility that one has to keep on the shelf uh, while you're preserving uh, your effort not simply to be drawn in uh, to the fact or the possibility that this was a, a, a calculated attack and that part of what was needed uh, was to postpone our um, uh, sort of sense of what the ultimate danger was uh, so that we could be softened up by our experience of the first version of the virus. And we certainly have been softened up. I mean, our economy is in uh, relative shambles, and so are economies elsewhere in the world. Uh, we are uh, now engaged in an election that is 
turning out to be the least democratic in the history of our country because assemblies and other things essential to our democratic process are being interfered with on the excuse of the uh, uh, coronavirus, plus other kinds of gatherings that also in the end contribute to moral factors that contribute to what people do at the polls, like church assemblies and prayer meetings and other kinds of things um, that, that help people form themselves to make a decision uh, about our elections. Um, I put, put all this in front of you um, in the hope that since you're somebody way more knowledgeable than the rest of us, uh, you might suggest a way of trying to keep all of that in proper perspective. Uh, because there are things we should act on and there are other things we might, you know, sort of keep aside as possibilities uh, while preparing ourselves for what we may have to deal with if they turn out to be true. Um, and those are different categories of reaction. Um, what would you recommend? Okay. The first thing I would say is that um, this virus has affected the entire world. So. If, you're, if, you're, if it's a national strategy to weaken your enemy, you use an organism that is not going to bounce back on your own people. So this would not be selected for that purpose. Anthrax, for example, you, is, is, comes from a spore. You can put those spores down and they stay where they are. It is not contagious person to person. And there are other, a few other diseases like that that are used for biological warfare or have been. Um, and toxins and other things, uh, neutron bombs, for example, will kill people and leave your buildings and your infrastructure mostly intact. So if you're going, so I do not believe this was done by one nation against another nation or multiple nations. This is something that has affected the world. The other fact I look at is, is the fact that the most promising treatment, which is hydroxychloroquine or its cousin chloroquine, have been suppressed primarily in the West. They are being used in China, in India routinely um, as prophylaxis and treatment and in a number of other countries. But in Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US, it's verboten to use hydroxychloroquine, which is likely to make this pandemic much less of a problem and cause fewer cases because people will not be spreading it for as long if they get treated immediately. Can, so the uh, but before you go on, can I make add one more element of complexity to uh, the uh, whole situation that you just addressed? Because, and that element would be this: there is one other thing that if I were an attacker, I would make provision for, and that is to make provision for the fact that if I am able to deal with the consequences and you are not, that gives me the decisive advantage. I would, of course, want to keep that a secret, keep it off the radar screen as best I could. Uh, but if I happen to be sitting on top of something that made a serious contribution to my ability to do that, uh, uh, some naturally occurring substance right. that I could use right. in order to deal with the situation uh, if it, uh, as it spread, or if it spread among my own people. Final element, uh, and this I say with particular regard to the Chinese and no apology to them whatsoever, because I don't feel like I have to apologize to them. 
um, though uh, I suppose the world, some parts of the world are moving closer and closer to thinking so. Uh, but um, because I'm not particularly impressed in the course of the history of the Chinese communist regime that they care a whit for their people in comparison to their strategic objectives, in comparison to their ideological goals. Um, their understanding of what people are is devoid of a sense of their intrinsic worth, calculates it in uh, terms, if we take seriously their commitment to things like Marxist, Leninism, scientific materialism, all this garbage, um, that, that then allow them to regard any given situation and say, how many folks are we going to lose by this? And if it makes a substantial contribution to their goal, they'll go ahead and lose them. They don't care. Because those people don't have an intrinsic worth against the worth of achieving a leap forward toward their objective. And the Chinese communists, I'm sorry, have acted like this in the course of their history several times. Um, that this is not a something that's uppermost in their minds. If you combine all of that together, then they'd be folks who, if they put the narrative together and were looking to fool people, would probably throw in some possibility of casualties and other things just to make it convincing, and it wouldn't keep them awake at night. Now, that's a very cynical view, but okay. I'll be excused, I think, for holding it in light of what has been shown to be, not the hoped-for character in the mouths of a lot of diplomats and wishful thinkers, but the actual character of the present Chinese regime, uh, which seems to me to have more in common with uh, you know, the regimes of Mao Zedong and the regime that sent tanks into Tiananmen Square than some of the, the, the rulers that came in between um, these two segments of time. Yeah. You understand what well, I'm saying? I do. Um, Alan, I believe that uh, the leaders of many nations probably feel that way. Uh, but I would say that at, at the current time, the Chinese have actually taken pretty good care of their people, trying to control this epidemic, um, not letting it get a, out of hand so they look like, you know, less guilty. And it is the public health agencies of the U.S. government that have, are working so hard to prevent people from getting adequate treatment here. Mm. You know, what is that about? There are unprecedented behaviors by our public health agencies to stop uh, doctors prescribing a quite safe drug for patients by creating lies about the, the dangerousness of a drug that's been around for 65 years and has been given millions and millions of times in the US and billions of times in the world. Um, by publishing in the world's top medical journal an article claiming to be from over 600 hospitals saying that hydroxychloroquine treated patients died at a much higher rate than those who didn't get it and it turned out that that entire article was a fabrication yet it was published in the top world's top medical yeah, journal that was the one published in lancet right and it was blared all over the media in the U.S. of how important this study was. This was the one that was going to end the debate. Um, but it was very easy. You could read a page or two and realize the study was nonsense. I did. I blogged about it the evening it came out 
it was nonsense. And yet, um, the Lancet held firm, and federal agencies have have quoted it many times to justify how they handled the, an emergency use authorization or how they handled clinical trials. Not only in the U.S., this has gone on in England, in, in Europe, and other places. Um, and that, to me, is really what needs to be explored. Why, why has the government made mistake after mistake in its response to this crisis? And even before the crisis, when, when we had only 1% of the PPE that um, expert committees had suggested the government stockpile and money had been allocated for that and yet we didn't have it. Well, you know, why didn't we have it? Mm. Why, why were the people charged with protecting us against bioterrorism and pandemics not buying uh, 75 cent masks? Mm. It, you know, it doesn't make sense, but we didn't have it. Um, we have known about coronavirus threats. There's been many studies of. Um, well, there, there is one. There is one there. study on corona on a coronavirus pandemic just last fall, and yet, look, we ha we were prepared with absolutely nothing, despite all this attention that had been placed on a coronavirus well, pandemic. There is one sort of disturbing, uh, but possible, response to your question, though. Because if you watch things being done that give you a higher death toll than expected, or than you have to have, right, given available therapies that you could apply. And then you see people uh, purposely repressing uh, uh, doctors who in good conscience want to use it, right, want to use that therapy or take that approach. Uh, there is one explanation. But it's not one that people who generally see good people, people with decent consciences, people who don't lay awake at night, as the Bible says, devising evil for other people. Um, I, I, I think we have a harder time uh, taking account of the fact that, well, if you really are a aiming to achieve a wicked result, you will not, you know, sort of stay awake at night figuring, uh, feeling bad about that result. You'll stay awake at night figuring how you figure out figuring out how you get away with it. That's what you stay awake at night doing. Um, what if they want a higher death toll? Because that higher death toll achieves two things. Step number one, it may achieve or contribute to a political objective some of them have. We could talk about that at great length, but since our time is a little limited now, <laughs> I wouldn't want to go off in that one because it lasts forever. But in, in terms of the, uh, the other side of it, you might want to achieve uh, or, or tolerate at least the achievement of a higher death toll because you're following a strategy that says something is waiting in the wings to handle this and you're so positioned that you and others who are sort of your cohorts are going to benefit enormously from the world's investment in that alternative. This does occur to me as I'm listening to Bill Gates tell us the whole world's going to have to be vaccinated uh, with a vaccine that looks like it's going to help deal with the situation, but in a way that then, like influenza, requires that we do this all the time. And that therefore you're creating a permanent spigot out of which will come money flowing from the pockets of people all around the world through the health sector into the coffers of certain pharmaceutical companies. Uh, this is a very dismaying suggestion, I know, because it implies 
a kind of a low view of the integrity of certain people operating in the health sector, in the political sector, in all different kinds of sectors. But it does strike me that if you had such people and you were then also had the situation of the communist Chinese, both of whom don't appear to have particularly delicate consciences, what if they were working together? Oh, yes. there's a conspiracy again. It's also a strategic thought, so I won't apologize for it. What if they were working together? These two things produce an outcome that not only achieves a short-term political objective, Donald Trump may lose the election, but they also uh, uh, achieve a longer-term objective, which is actually to take the American people out of the driver's seat of their constitutional government and kick this experiment in self-government into the ash can, for good, probably. Um, that's what I've been thinking about, because we're separating the crisis in health from the crisis in our politics. But I'm not sure they're separable. Yes. Am I making I sense at all? So I believe that various measures that have been taken, in, the, the most striking of which is the ban on hydroxychloroquine, or the attempted bans in many states through a variety of mechanisms, including governors, uh, agencies of this, different state agencies and pharmacy boards, as well as pharmacy chains, as well as manufacturers who have said they won't supply the drug for the treatment of COVID. Um, that that, to, to, in order to create that kind of situation, you need a lot of power and probably a lot of money. Um, and by, so the ultimate um, result of not allowing what seems to be an effective drug to be used is that the pandemic is maintained longer, a lot longer, mm -hmm. and it's an excuse to maintain lockdowns longer, keep everybody frightened longer, and run a lot of small businesses into the ground, and maybe large businesses too, um, and make dramatic changes in the economy. Such. Uh, um, attempts by the media to say that money, for example, may be harboring virus, so we would be better off using our credit cards instead of handling money, seems to be right up, for instance, Bill Gates' alley to get us all on electronic money. Mm. Uh, there, there are other ways in which the, the increasing surveillance technology is being brought in in part through contact tracing. In, yep. in Germany, they do contract tracing personally. A person calls you, you talk to them, and that's how it gets done. And it's not um, by your cell phone find, finding all your contacts, everyone you get physically close to, everyone you know, you know, looking at having access to your, your contacts in order to create better models of who everybody is related to. Um, it's, so it, it seems that certain potentially what are called technocratic goals are being moved forward. And you know from your work in government, this is how things work. When you have a crisis or a change, everybody who has their pet project comes in and tries to find a way to push it forward using that crisis. And so that's what's happening now. Um, where it's going to go, I don't know, but I, I suspect 
prices will rise greatly, um, incomes will go down. As I said, um, a, a small number of people will be able to buy a lot for a lot less money. Mm. And this will look at the end, we, we have no idea. Well, one of the things that that suggests is a redistribution of wealth in what many folks might regard as perhaps not the right direction. Them that hath will get, uh, and those that hath not, they will suffer. Uh, and, and it strikes me as fulfilling, uh, uh, sadly. One of the realities that lies behind the supposed commitment to democracy of all the people who call themselves socialist, progressive, left-wing, this is and that's, I don't know. They pretend, therefore, to be champions of the people. But I often try to point out to people, democracy is one of those ambiguous words. And I've always felt a little bit suspicious because when you talk about, say, oligarchy, right, or monarchy, the second part of that, it's oligos the few, connected with um, archos, as I recall, which means rule or leadership. Same is true of monarchy. W when you are dealing with democracy, the word kratos, which is the second part of that, just means power. See? Uh, so in one case, you're talking about the guy at the steering wheel. In the other case, you could quite possibly just be talking about the fuel in the tank. And if you're talking about the fuel in the tank, it begs the question of who's at the driver's wheel. But I'll tell you something. If the people are in the tank, they are no longer in the driver's seat. You see what I'm saying? And I think a lot of what's going on here is not just aimed at Donald Trump. It's aimed at the people who saw themselves lifting him up because he was saying at least things that seemed to correspond to some respect for the role they're supposed to play in American society. And the others came at him like he was just something out of hell that they had to push back uh, into, uh, into place. And that verified it. Uh, but now all of a sudden, in the midst of the crisis, we're seeing people that's like uh, a car called Donald Trump was rolled in and it has performed very well in various ways. But now people are f coming out of the back seat of the car like, like the uh, Greeks tumbled out of the Trojan horse doing stuff that implies the end of the role that people have played. Because we haven't really had a democracy. We've had a demarchy, a word that doesn't even exist, because that's how little was thought of it throughout the whole history of political science. The rule of the people? You've got to be kidding. But we weren't kidding. We not only made it work, we made it work to produce the most successful and stunning political result in the history of mankind. And they want it gone, I think. They being all the forces now conspiring together to remove the people of this country and therefore elsewhere where they've imitated us from the driver's seat. Now I went through all of that knowing that I was using up our last little bit of time. You have been amazing. See, and, and what I love about it is you are that combination of a level head, deep information, and the kind of sincere respect for true possibilities that deserves respect no matter what side of the road you fall down on. Because I'm absolutely sure that you are there because you think it's the truest thing you can say right now. And that makes me trust you. 
I don't trust these other people at all. They seem to me to be so obviously tendentious, talking out of both sides of their mouth and the back of their head sometimes. And how can you do that and claim to be somebody who has an integrity as a respecter of facts and truth? Uh, and then very often now they're just smacking people down as if they no longer have to give a rational explanation for the kinds of constraints they're imposing, the kind of future that they're envisaging, in which they're essentially pushing both individual responsibility and the role of the people in uh, manning and controlling their institutions of self-government. They want to push that all aside yeah. so that we become what we're appearing to be when we put on the face masks and wander around the world. Uh, we appear to be kind of people uh, without identity, each of us little units, gathered together in masses that are then flung this way and that to achieve purposes no longer our own. Does that make sense? Because I, I find, I think that's what's going on. Would you be willing, I know you're, you're probably greatly in demand, you ought to be, and I know that this was on your part a, um, a, a real um, gift to this program and to everybody who gets a chance to watch it. But if I could get you back on, we still have, as you know, an enormous way to go, uh, but, um, but I'd love to continue exploring it whenever you have time. I, would that I be all right? I'd love that. I would too. Thank you so much for being on. And, and just to give people a taste, a foretaste, I don't know. There, I, I hope this convinces all of you out there who are watching or will hear this program uh, by whatever venue you do it. There are people who are still committed to the bedrock true vocation of science and scientific research, of medicine and medical healing. There are such people. We've been listening to one. And therefore, don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Uh, just sharpen your ability to listen for that kind of integrity. Uh, you may not hear much of it, but when you do, run after that the way a starving man would run after a crust of bread because that's what we need to do if we're going to save anything like a semblance uh, of our way of life. Uh, ponder that and then join us again here at Let's Talk America.